The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the lines and available odds, of course, at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. North Carolina listeners, don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in your state. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Hey guys, on today's episode, we break down the Monday night football game and talk about some of the end of game coaching decisions, what's been going wrong for the defense and the good and bad of the offense and what can and can't be fixed on both sides of the ball. Just a note, we recorded this before news of the Eli Apple trade, so he's been traded to the New Orleans Saints for a 4th and 7th round pick. Obviously, that's big news, but we just weren't able to get to it in this episode. We'll have plenty of coverage on that at BigBlueView.com over the next couple days. I know it might not be the last big trade that happens for this team. It it seems they might be selling a little bit. Uh, But again, that's just why it's not mentioned in this episode, but we'll definitely be talking about it. Uh, So thanks for listening and let's get to it. Hello, and welcome to the Big Blue View podcast. I am Dan Pizzuta, joined here by Chris Flum, and we are here in the aftermath of the Giants' 23-20 loss on Monday Night Football to the Atlanta Falcons. I joked on Twitter this podcast is going to be me talking about the two-point conversion for an hour because I just don't want to talk about any other part of the game. that okay with you today, Chris? Perfectly all right. I am tired, I am grouchy, and I am frustrated. So let's just get into it. (laughs) Yeah, Giants football. So I guess when we do look at this, like I'm, I'm joking about talking about the two-point conversion for an hour, I think. But, <laughs> but that is, I think, where we need to start and just the whole end-of-the-game scenario in general. So the Giants scored a touchdown, and after, and after the touchdown—yeah, crazy in itself right there. Uh, so they scored a touchdown, they go down— And this is where, you know, things will get a little crazy. The Giants decided to go for two when they were down eight after the touchdown. So this is one place where the analytics have kind of said you should go for two all the time. But no one has really done it. Uh, Doug Peterson was really like the first person to do it. And he did it two weeks ago against Minnesota. So we'll just break this down real quick and I'll try to keep it as simple as possible. Basically, two-point conversions are around 50-50, right? So if you get a two-point conversion after the touchdown and you are now down six, you score again, and if you kick an extra point, you're ahead. 
if you don't get it, you can still go for a two-point conversion after your next touchdown, and that's still a 50-50 shot. But if you put all of those probabilities together, it's 50% that it works out, and then it's only 25% that it completely fails, which is the combined probability of missing a 50-50 shot twice. So really, you're giving yourself the ability to try to go out in the lead. And the advantage you have of being up six in that situation is way bigger than the disadvantage you would have down eight. And of course, in all of these scenarios, you need a defensive stop afterward. And the Giants didn't get that anyway. They let up the field goal. So it didn't matter in general when everything came down to it but it's the right call mathematically it makes a whole lot of sense and when we've talked about before putting your team in a position to win instead of maybe pushing off losing for a little bit this is the type of decision we're talking about yeah exactly I think anybody who, for some reason, didn't have the game muted heard uh, Booger McFarlane ranting and raving about the terrible call to go for two rather than playing for a tie. And yeah, all due respect to Booger, who played the game at the highest level, he can take a whole stadium worth of seats. For every reason you just pointed out, and also the Giants have not played to win much at all this season and maybe too little too late but they finally did it against Atlanta and it was the right call yeah and after after the game in the in the post-game press conference uh Shermer before he was even asked about it came out and and gave his reasoning he said it's something the Giants have talked about internally they like the math on it they believe it makes a lot of sense and he stands by the decision it's something he'll probably do again which which is great he says he didn't regret it which which is good that's the type of thinking you want to see now we can talk about some other Shermer decisions later in this episode and I'm sure we will but but that is a good thing to see just taking that way of thinking especially for a franchise that quite famously spit in the face of analytics when they took a running back second overall they had a general manager mock analytics people at the press conference I think we all know the image of Dave Gettleman doing the little keyboard thing let's Um, just say they spit in the face of analytics when they hired Dave Gettleman. Well, yeah, that too. <laughs> um, just, but right hey, there, it's, that, that was the root of it all. <laughs> but it's good to see that the Giants are having these conversations internally, whether they were having these conversations to start or whether Peterson's decision to go for it two weeks ago against Minnesota is what led to these conversations. But either way, having these conversations and having them actually lead to things that happen on the field is a real good sign for this team. And it's a good sign for a team where there's not a lot of other good signs right now. Yeah. You know, sticking with the end of the game and Shermer decisions, I have no clue what he was thinking with trying the quarterback sneaks uh, with Eli Manning at the goal line. Yeah, you know, they're desperately trying to put themselves in position to 
win the game on just a series of long shots and their offensive line was just straight up offensive this game they couldn't do much of anything and Eli Manning is Eli Manning he has his moments where he looks like he could actually be a professional athlete but they are few and far between and with an offensive line that gets about as much push as a blocking sled he wasn't ever going to make that so why do you do it with no timeouts you know what i i don't have a problem with running the first one quarterback sneaks usually don't even need the line to do that well in order for them to convert on short yardage so as of the end of 2017 quarterback sneaks in short yardage converted about 83% of the time. That's just about better a better success rate than you can get on almost any other play. Um, so the first one, I completely get. You expect Eli to, to get in there. You would expect him to get in on one of two. But I, I think after you fail on that first one, and with no timeouts remaining and the clock still running, I think you have to have another play called there. And lining up for the second one is where I have an issue without a plan to do anything else. The first one I do not have a problem with. That's probably your highest percentage play, and you're trying to get into the end zone as soon as possible. Yeah, I'll go along with that. But then, again, the second one, you know, with the clock running, I I just don't know. At the very least, how about play action? You know, they have trouble running it, but... Right, but even that, and I'm gonna, I'm the biggest proponent of play action. You're going to find, I think, play action should be run on almost every single pass <laughs> attempt, and I'm not sure why it's not. But if you're talking about trying to figure out whether the offensive line is going to hold up or not, I mean, it's it's going to be better pushing forward than it is holding up with play action. I, I don't think you want Eli standing back there for too long. I think no. more, way more bad things could happen in that situation than him just trying to push forward and gain a yard. You should be able to gain a yard in in that situation. I think the problem was letting the time roll and that second one that also didn't go in. And that's where the problem really happened. Yeah, there's a lot of things that Giants offense should do, should do or should be able to do that they just either can't or don't. Yeah, and... Uh, and as we get to that, like those two plays felt really big, but again, the, the Giants' chances of winning at that point were also slim. Thanks to the field goal they gave up earlier after they scored the touchdown. So when Rhett Ellison had the, the seven yard reception that got them down to the one, there was only about a minute left when that happened. Atlanta was still. a two win at that point uh, per the NFL scrape R data I'm looking at and that I use for a lot of stuff. So the Giants still needed to score. They needed to recover an onside kick and then they needed to score again. So the odds of that happening were not great. And so while we look at these last couple plays about how big they were and it feels like they blew the game there... Not totally the case because they had already put themselves down with that field goal. There were so many other opportunities they had earlier in the game they didn't convert on that honestly and you know mathematically when you look at it cost them more than those failed sneaks did. 
Agreed. I would argue that basically the entire first half was one giant missed opportunity or a bunch of really good missed opportunities. Yeah, yeah. so the first quarter ended nothing nothing, which I'm sure is not something any of us saw coming. No. And then it was only 10-3 at half. The Giants probably should have gone into the half with the lead, or at the very least with as a tie game. You don't get three straight stops on the Atlanta Falcons and then with their offense and then turn around and go against their defense and not put up any points. That is, that's the real missed opportunity right there. Because you knew they were going to adjust to the Giants defense and they had to capitalize when the defense got them the ball back again and again and again and they just couldn't yeah they had they had a shot they got in the end of the first half they got into Atlanta territory they had a third and six from the nine and then Grady Jarrett happened. Oh, we talked about Grady Jarrett a little bit on the preview podcast. He's a very good pass rusher from the interior. So he sacked Eli on that play, pushed him back to 4th and 10, and they kicked a field goal. So that got them to 7-3. And then they let another field goal happen in, like, in under a minute for Atlanta's next drive to end the half. So Atlanta was able to go up 10-3 to go into the half. So that was something we saw from the defense kind of all night, just letting Atlanta push the ball downfield. They had a pass rush early that kind of started to go away late in the game, whether that was fatigue or Atlanta figuring out how to block it and or, or adjusting uh, to the rush, calling some plays to take advantage of that aggressiveness, which they did in the second half, probably something the Giants can take note of and maybe do that on the offensive side. But then the Giants came back first drive in the third quarter. They get down to fourth and one. Uh, they go for it. They they should have had it. There were options there. The play obviously was called to Odell Beckham. Pat Shermer again seen on the sideline, mouthing, why didn't you throw it to Odell? Rhett Ellison was even open in the back of the end zone, but Eli went to Scott Simonson. The pass fell incomplete, so they didn't score there. Again, that's something where it's the right decision. It honestly wasn't a bad call. If Eli throws that immediately to Odell and trusts it, that's probably a touchdown. If he waits maybe a second longer, looks past Simonson, Ellison's open, so that's probably a touchdown there. That is not a bad call at all. No, and... With regards to the Giants' pass rush kind of going away, I have a feeling it's a combination of both. The Falcons did a fantastic job of spreading the ball around. I it, The one weakness of blitzing is that you only have 11 men, and if you're send, sending somebody to rush the passer, he cannot be back in coverage. I mean, that's just physics right there. And so the Falcons just identified what area of the field is going to be open and replaced the blitzer with the ball. That's more or less quarterbacking 101, or at least maybe 201. And also fatigue, Olivier Vernon, his second game back, he played 64 of 65 defensive snaps. It was like 
the last two seasons with Vernon all over again. He never came off the field. Right. That's something the Giants said they didn't want to do. They said that in the offseason, even before Vernon was hurt. They said they wanted to have a, a good rotation and rotating guys in. But again, we see Vernon as the only you know, real threat and they are scared to take him off the field. It's exactly what happened the past couple of years. Connor Barwin only played eight defensive snaps. He was a starter while Vernon was hurt. Kerry Wynn played 22. Yeah, Kerry Wynn. Uh, Mario Carter played, played 24, which was 37%. Kareem Martin was in there on 34, which was 52%. So I, it looks like they they rotated that second position there, uh, but they they didn't rotate Vernon at all. And, you know, I, I understand wanting to keep Vernon on the field because he is your one really good pass rusher, but also... I mean, you got to try to keep him healthy. And if he's not getting anything at the fourth quarter, having him on the field, it doesn't matter. Exactly. It's the same problem the Giants ran into in 2016 and 2017 when they had Vernon and Jason Pierre-Paul. They just never took them off the field. And they were gassed by the time they had to come up with a stop at the end of the game. And it was something, again, where the the pass rush was there early. They had five quarterback hits. That kind of feels like they all happened in the first half. They had three sacks. Those all happened in the first quarter, I think. Yeah, all three of those sacks happened on Atlanta's first two drives. It was the third down on, on the first drive that forced them to punt, and then two sacks on the second drive. And then they didn't sack Matt Ryan again. Well, they did have one sack in the third quarter by Mario Edwards. That was taken off by an Eli Apple defensive hold. So they did get to him. It didn't count. So uh, maybe we can count that as partial credit. I don't know. But yeah, they were getting after him and Atlanta adjusted. There were some plays where Atlanta knew pressure was going to come. They were expecting it, but they adjusted and they had had a play call to it. Like you said, they would take blitzers and and they would throw into it. I remember uh, one play specifically, I wrote about it in my plays that changed the game piece there was a late third and eight and they were on their own 20 it was started the third quarter they went empty on third and eight Ito Smith was wide to the left in empty formation Uh, the Giants sent blitzers Ryan had pressure in his face but Smith just ran a crossing route he was Ryan was able to get the ball out and Smith had room to run in the middle of the field and they converted for 20 yards It's something where you you use the aggressiveness of the defense against them. You use that pressure against them. It opens up something else in the middle of the field. And you have a running back who's good at catching and running, being able to catch and run. I know it's not something the Giants do very often, but it's something that is allowed. It is? Has anyone told the Giants this? Yeah, the the Falcons, we were running wheel routes out of the backfields. It was some crazy stuff, man. It was just something where the Falcons were able to find room in the middle of this defense. And, and maybe let's stick with the defense for right now, uh, just because that's that's where we are. And we'll go back to the offense in a little bit. We always start with the offense. Yeah, um, that's true. 
So, so we'll stick here. But they were they were able to find open spaces and use it against them. And when they weren't finding open spaces, they were still able to make completions because Matt Ryan is very good. The receivers are very good. Although when we were talking about whether the Giants had enough depth in the secondary to contain all of Atlanta's receivers and skill players, uh, Marvin Hall wasn't exactly who I was thinking of, but he uh, he had a long 47-yard touchdown for, for the first touchdown of the game. Well, that's probably why he was successful. He wasn't the guy anyone was thinking of. And if you can go, usually if you can go three deep, if you can go four deep, you're going to be really tough to stop. Yeah, and that was a play where, where he was out wide and he was on Janoris Jenkins. Janoris Jenkins was in coverage. When you watch the play, the way Jenkins is playing to the outside, it looks like he thought he had would have safety help deep, but Curtis Riley... It's Curtis Riley. Yeah, yeah well, he, he uh, jumped a route uh, from tight end Austin Hooper, who was running up the seam. So that took away him in the backfield. So as soon as Hall ran to the post, Jenkins had little chance to catch him. Although Jenkins made a better effort than than you would expect. And he was a little closer to Hall at, at the end of the play than probably a lot of cornerbacks would be. Obviously, it didn't matter, but he did have some recovery speed there. But yeah, another another breakdown in the Giants' defense, and it's, it's a place where someone schemed open a very wide hole, and they were able to to convert, which is something the Giants' defense has seen kind of often this year. Yeah, it's something they're just going to keep seeing because there aren't really any remedies for it. You can have midseason. The roster is what the roster is. I mean, other than maybe Grant Haley having a meteoric rise. There is no cavalry. Yeah, and, and, and especially at positions like free safety, where Curtis Riley is like the only option. There, I mean, there aren't enough of those to go around for the league as a whole, let alone finding one in the middle of the season. There's not much to replace Riley right now. The problem, of course, was going into the season with Curtis Riley as the safety when there were other options. I mean, again, we can we can briefly mention Eric Reed, but yeah. uh, but Trey Boston was out there. Um, mm-hmm. He's someone the Giants absolutely should have taken a look at. He's actually killing it in Arizona, where he's been killing it. He was out in Week 7, but he was still playing really well when he was on the field. And he's a guy who played that center field position, which is what the Giants are asking Riley to do. Understand, maybe if you didn't think Eric Reed could play that, which that he's kind of playing now in Carolina, but Trey Boston was that guy. He was not expensive. You could have brought him in. And, I mean, again, you had Darian Thompson or Andrew Adams. I, I can't imagine one of those guys was worse. So when you, when you talk about Riley, the, that's the problem was going into the season with him. And, and he, he continues to be a problem on the field. Missed tackles. He took multiple bad angles. 
the the Tevin Coleman touchdown um, before the snap he shifted a little bit to the other side of the field where Julio Jones was playing to kind of shadow him but the once he charged in he he took a bad angle and Tevin Coleman was able to run right by him there were there were other plays where he's just taking bad angles and can't bring the ball carrier down and that's that's literally his job as the free safety as that last yeah. line of defense there's nothing and else he's supposed to do. Exactly. And in James Betcher's system, which it relies heavily on cover one with that one deep free safety who's basically there to be the last line of defense to sh- to be able to find out where he has to be and then get there. You cannot hide your free safety. You need a good free safety to run that defense otherwise it's just a gaping hole that teams are going to take advantage of unfortunately it seems almost like when the team was being put together the defensive scheme wasn't the kind of coverage that the defensive scheme needs wasn't exactly taken into account you know they, they had a bunch of guys who were not even in the league last year for a scheme that puts a pretty high premium on athletic ability and coverage ability. You need that free safety, like like I just said. And they took a guy who has never played free safety and put him there. Okay, Darian Thompson doesn't have the best range, but at least he's got the mental footwork to play the position. Right. Uh, There's not a lot you can do right now. But yeah, when you you talk about... The kinds of players who who were brought in and who are playing big roles on this defense. I mean, the the BW Webb is is another one of them. The Giants weren't shadowing Julio Jones when he went into the slot, which he does often. So there was a lot of Julio Jones against BW Webb in this game, and the Falcons made sure to take advantage of that. But that's not even the only problem. The highly priced guys, Janoris Jenkins, has not had a good season. Uh, Eli Apple has been picked on since he came back. I mean, Julio Jones had nine receptions for 104 yards. It's it's not like they kept him at bay at all. He was pretty much able to do what he wanted when, when they went to him. Now, in the middle of the field, I think Alec Ogletree has, has still been a problem. He had one play in the beginning of the game. I think the end of the first quarter, it was a third and 13, the Giants are sitting in zone. Mohamed Sanu runs right across the field, right through Alec Ogletree's zone, and he is flat-footed and stares at him and just lets him run right past him and then reacts after Sanu is already two steps in front of him. And Sanu is able to have a, a catch and run for a 16-yard gain on a third down. And that was from Atlanta's 26. So instead of making a play that could have forced the Falcons to punt in their own territory... They just got a first down because I don't, I don't even know what Ogletree was doing. And then add that to the fact he's been one of the leaders in broken tackles uh, this season. And, and that's, again, paying a lot of money for, for a guy who, who has not really been making a meaningful impact in the middle of that defense. And he's one of the guys that is on the field every snap. Yeah, I don't think he has missed a snap this season. Which, and... I mean, d- d- good for him, but... The way yeah. you're, you're letting if somebody's guys gonna be run on that past field. you and, and you're breaking and tackles are being broken on your attempts. I just... Yeah. 
you have to be able to make those plays if you're going to be the defensive captain. If you're going to be a guy they're paying the con- the contract that they are, that they gave up the draft capital that they did to get you, you have to make those plays. But there have there have been a lot of guys that the Giants have invested heavily in who just are not getting it done. Right. They- and I, I think when we look at the defense, I think I have more optimism for that going forward it's say not for the rest of the season but into 2019 because i like some of the things they're doing but the talent clearly is not there and i think the hope is with a little more talent you put it in this scheme and there's something that can happen it's the opposite of what i feel about the offense which is the talent is there and it's just not happening. No. You know, speaking of the biggest investment to just not get it done, the offensive line in general and Nate Solder in particular, this is the second week in a row where he has just gotten beat like a drum and not playing like a $22 million left tackle or offensive tackle in particular. I have a very angry rant in me about the perception that left tackles are more important than right tackles, but I won't get into it now. We have a bye week for that. Yeah, I think we've talked about it here before uh, when we were talking about moving flowers over to right tackle. It doesn't matter. But yeah, this this offensive line has not been good. On Monday, uh, ESPN came out with a ranking of all the tackle duos in the league, and they're using their new pass block win rate metric Uh, which basically just measures how often an offensive lineman is holding a block for at least 2.5 seconds. That's basically the baseline, and then it's a percentage of plays. The Giants have, unsurprisingly, the worst tackle duo in the league right now. Um, Nate Solder's at 66%, uh, which is very bad. Chad Wheeler is at 54%, which is easily the worst among tackles. So he has definitely been a problem. Um, But you kind of, I don't want to say you expect that from Wheeler, but he has a more reasonable case to be very bad, not the first choice, uh, than Solder does, who is now the the highest paid tackle in football. Uh, We can, maybe we'll, we'll say for the bye week of the actual logistics of of signing Solder and why they didn't necessarily need to do it just because he was the only slightly decent tackle on the market but yeah he he has not been good and that offensive line is it's derailing a lot of of what the offense can do and again we can we can talk about there's some places where the Giants can maybe use that idea a little more and plan around that. It kind of seems like every offensive play they run, they're surprised when it doesn't work when there's a blown block, which is crazy. But we talked about Atlanta. They they had some plays before that they used when they knew pressure was going to come. The Giants seem like they're shocked every time there's an offensive lineman who blows a snap and play is blown up. I think they need to realize now the offensive line is not good. There are going to be blown blocks, and they have to work around that a little more. Yeah. At this point, I would 
almost install a college offense. I would look at, you know, uh, Lincoln Riley in Oklahoma and just go to school on him over the bye week. You know, maybe put Eli in the pistol all the time. Get him, you know, back away from the offensive line, but still have Saquon Barkley back behind him so he actually has decent running angles. And you know what? Just switch to an RPO offense. Just read one guy, make the decision, get the ball out quick, put defenders in conflict every play. They The Giants were actually pretty decent at running RPOs last year. They should be able to do so again, and they've got better skill position players, you know, when they can figure out how to use more than one or two at a time. Right. And I mean, the, the thing about RPOs, and if especially if you do uh, a pre-snap read on an RPO, which is something Eli is, is very good at. Of course, we talked about when Carolina kind of tricked him into a pre-snap read and it ended in an interception. But probably more often than not, um, he's going to make the right read in that scenario. So, yeah, I'm actually... Yeah, that is I'm, his strength as, an off- as a quarterback. Right. I'm not opposed to, to a more pistol-heavy offense at all. That's probably a good idea and something we should look into uh, a little more. But, okay, so when... We talk about some of these plays that the Giants are just completely mystified when there's a blown block and how they should kind of go around that for the, I don't know, how many episodes of this podcast have we done? Um, For whatever number that is, we're going to talk about the usage of Saquon Barkley. (laughs) Um, (laughs) As I called him before, the human puzzle box, because apparently he is impossible to figure out even though he should be the most obvious player in the offense to figure out. As we were saying before we went on air, I swear, if Sean Payton or Andy Reid or just you know, Josh McDaniels or you know, there's a few other guys in the league, Kyle Shanahan, if any of them had Sterling Shepard and Odell Beckham and Evan Ingram, and Saquon Barkley, they would be putting up 30 points a game easily. And I swear, Saquon Barkley would have 2,000 yards by now. Why? Why won't they let him run a freaking route? (laughs) I mean, the the frustrating thing here is Sherbert was supposed to be that guy. He was an excellent offensive coordinator in Minnesota last year. He was great. They had great schemes. They had great play designs. I know because I looked at all of them and I wrote a whole bunch about it in the offseason talking about what he could possibly bring over. But that just hasn't been the case. And and the usage of Barkley has been probably the biggest disappointment of, of what this offense is. So I'm going to quickly read out the air yards on each of Barkley's targets in this game. Some of our more... Squeamish listeners may want to cover their ears for this. Zero. Negative one. Negative nine. Four. That was a fun play. He ran an actual route. Negative seven. One. Negative five. Zero. Negative five. Negative nine. What are we doing? Uh, What? How? I, I don't even know. 
But I'm I'm done with the whether he should have been the pick at like second overall debate or not. It, whatever he's on the team right now, just use him, use him like he was worth the second overall yeah. pick. I I don't understand it. Something we've both said a couple times. The reason why his value is justifiable as the second overall pick, even more than you know his ridiculous athleticism and his you know sky-high football character it's the fact that he has the ability to be an elite running back and a an elite receiver he is a weapon but he he's a he's a weapon the giants never take out of the holster it's the ferrari that's kept in the garage under a cover because you don't want to ruin it and it, they, it just seems like the giants know barkley can make any player miss at any time and and yeah right and their game plan is okay we're going to set this up to make Barkley make a guy miss and there was there was one play it was late in the game uh I again wrote about this too uh please go read the plays that changed the game post on Big Blue View right now because a lot of these plays are in it well not right now after you get done listening to this then go read so it was in the start of the fourth quarter a third and two Giants ran a swing pass well behind the line to Barkley, and it was an eight-yard loss. They took an eight-yard loss on third and two. And, okay, so part of the problem, at first I was like, oh, this is just one of their bad, very bad third down plays where they throw to Barkley behind the line of scrimmage, which is true. Yes, it was. But it was also an absolutely terrible display of blocking by the offensive line. So there were at least one offensive lineman was supposed to get out in front, but that didn't happen. Chad Wheeler completely whiffed on a cut block to Brooks Reed, who ended up being the first guy who was right in front of Barkley to stop him. A new center, Spencer Pulley, he stumbled as he got out of his stance. He actually ran into Sterling Shepard on the play, um, so he wasn't able to move and get out in front of the play and block anyone. So the way the play was designed, two defenders were supposed to be taken out of this play, and it was probably supposed to be Barkley one-on-one, which is odd you like, but again, you could just throw to Barkley in front of the line of scrimmage, and that doesn't need to happen. So instead of one-on-one, it was three people waiting for Barkley well behind the line of scrimmage, and it was a loss of eight. That's just, just bad offense all the way around. Yeah, they could have just run an easy angle route, which is basically guaranteed yards. They only needed three of them you know, to actually definitely pick up the first down. Uh, there was another play where the Giants actually had Barkley run a wheel route. The problem was, I, I believe they even had him and Odell Beckham on the same... Yeah, on the the same side. Yeah, they actually ran a combination that looked really good. Yeah, it wasn't the first read. I'm not sure that either one of them were even in the progression because you could see Manning go through his progressions, but it was all on the left side of the field. I believe those two were only used as a decoy to try to pull some of the coverage over to the right, which it didn't because either one of them could have moonwalked into the end zone. 
I guess that's not something you can blame on Eli if if his read is supposed to be to the other side of the field, then that's what he does. I just don't understand why you have Barkley and Beckham finally running a route combination to the same side of the field. That's something we've been calling for for a while, too. I don't understand how that's not the read on that play. Me neither, but it looked like it was just either a two or three level. I'm trying to picture the play in my head. It looked like it was a two or three level read on the left side of the field, and that was it. I I was glad to see... Shermer actually calls some multi-level concepts and to actually use some route combinations like that, but uh, just, uh. (laughs) There were some good route combinations that were run when there was time to throw the ball. It just, it it wasn't enough. Again, they stole in the red zone. Um, We finally got, again, another game where Odell Beckham was targeted down the field. They actually used Odell Beckham and Sterling Shepard the way they should be used. Yeah. Each one of them lined up, you know, out wide on both sides. They were both in the slot on both sides. They went down the field. They were targeted down the field. And it worked. It worked really well. I mean, they had, what was it, 210 yards between the two of them. Yeah. So I'm looking at Beckham right now, 12.77 expected points added uh, when he was targeted. And again, expected points added just kind of takes historical play-by-play from each point of the field and takes what any team is kind of expected to gain and just kind of bases it off that. Beckham, 12.77 expected points added. But that was more than an expected point added per target. And that is exceptional. That is, that's amazing. That is among the best. You, the best games in the league are over one expected point added per play. Uh, You do not see that very often. For some comparison, Barkley on his targets, negative 1.27 expected points added. So negative 0.12 EPA per target. Uh, that's that's not what you want from Barkley. That's actually different than he's usually been a positive piece of of the passing game. Atlanta kind of really made sure to bottle him up in the passing game. The Giants made it easier for them by throwing to him so often behind the line of scrimmage. But we again the positive we had another another Beckham game where he was targeted downfield and he showed you what he could do. He got open downfield. He made some great catches. Yeah. And that's something that should just be used more often. Throw to him. Even if he doesn't look open, he's probably more open than you think he is. Even when he's covered, he's more open than most receivers. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's the point of him being Odell Beckham. We have seen all the time. He, He makes some catches that... Not a lot of other receivers can make. And in this game, they I think they did a pretty good job of, of getting him some downfield routes where he could get open. And he still ran some slants that got him away from off coverage, got him room to catch and run. And those were good gains. When you can find a balance there, that's, that's the way to use Beckham. And yeah. that was not the way he was used earlier in the season. I think it's good that they're starting to figure that out. Maybe that gives you hope for something. And Eventually, it was good to see them use... not immediate hope, but... Yeah. 
and for the future. For the future. Everything we say right now is for the future. Yeah. And it was good to see them use Sterling Shepard. You know, similarly, get him down the field. He is much more than just a slot possession receiver. He can run with the ball. He's on it for a five foot ten. 190, maybe 200 pound receiver. He is ridiculously strong. He's, and he and Beckham should be used to complement each other like that. Absolutely. You could, yeah, Sterling Shepard should have been used way more than he has been. Uh, It was good to see him get going in this game. Barkley should be used better. Beckham should be used like he was in this game. Um, Evan Ingram? Evan Ingram, man. Let's. We could probably spend I'm a whole show get, talking about this. Yeah, so maybe I'm and not going to get. And we probably will during the bye week. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to get too upset with Ingram in this game. He was just coming back from injury, so we don't know exactly what Haven't. his status was and how he was feeling in this game. But yeah, just in general, using him more, using him more up the seam. Man, that's, that's a place you can stretch the defense. So I think the Giants have one more week before the bye. They play Washington next week, and then they have a bye. And, man, they, they need to do a lot of thinking <laughs> and reorganizing in in that bye week to, to figure out what they can do more of. And I think they know what they can do. They need to commit to doing it. You, um, you can't look at their tape and not see what they need to do and who they need to be. They just need to decide we are going to do that. Yeah, and uh, we'll we'll maybe see what other changes uh, they make in that time. It's 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 coming time where there, where there might be where there might be a few more shakeups on this team. So we'll see. Again, uh, another disappointing loss. The Giants are now one in six. There is, I will say this quite bluntly, there is no hope for anything this season. Um, and when you honestly, when you even look at, when you even look at uh, probabilities of whether the Giants are going to end up with a top pick, they are not the favorites for the top pick. They're like fourth or fifth per football outsiders. They only have like the fifth highest chance of even a top five pick. Um, and now we add to that where Justin Herbert might not be coming out of school. We'll talk about that probably on much later episodes in the season. So this team might not even be tanking. I, I don't think they're tanking, but this team might not even be bad in the correct way um, <laughs> and to a profitable way, which would be absolutely perfect. So on that note, I, I think we hit everything from this game. Ooh, man, a lot we, more than we thought we were going to, I yeah, think. Yeah, we always know how to end this podcast positively. Thank you guys for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you find your podcast if you have not done that yet. You can also uh, rate and review. Thank you to those who have done it. We have a couple that have been popping up over the past week or so. We will be back later in the week to preview the week eight. Yeah, the week eight game against Washington. And then it's the bye after that. So thank you guys for hanging out and we'll talk to you again soon. 
Hello, you're listening to Simone de Rochefort, one of the hosts of The Polygon Show. It's a show all about the video games that you'll never have time to play, brought to you by four friends who are just as passionate about food, soft drinks, and TV shows as we are about video games. Every Friday, we bring you a new hour of personal stories, like how we found the best way to play Yakuza 0, or even what happens when you play so much Zelda that you hurt your hands and can't play games anymore. Above all, we just have a really good time talking about the games that we love. Check out the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. You can also find us at Polygon Show on Twitter and send a tweet to say hi. Thanks for listening.